the screen. I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 this morning. I want to take a few moments and consider the subject of why the resurrection matters. Why the resurrection matters. Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 22 to 34 this morning. Our usual habit for those of you who are visiting is we like to take time and teach through God's word, whether it's through a passage of scripture or we're simply just looking at a theme from God's word. And so this morning we want to look at Acts 17. To give us some context, we're going to start reading in verse 16 and read down to 34. So Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16 and reading through to verse 34. I'll ask once again that if you're able to do so, you stand with me as I read this portion of God's word in our hearing this morning. Acts chapter 17. Just to give a little context, Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him in Athens. And in verse 16, God's word says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed by all, deeply distressed when he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching that you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I found even an altar which was on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. And from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art or imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He provides proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Pray that God blesses that reading of his word and grants us understanding. Join with me as I pray, ask for God's help, and we come to this portion of his word this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, on this most special of Lord's Days, as we gather together to remember the work of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray that you would help us, that we would think clearly about what your word has to say regarding who he is and what he has done for us. Father, I pray for as many as are here who maybe don't know you, who are unsure of their eternal state. We pray that as your word is preached, your spirit would be pleased to use this simple word to draw even your people to yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Be seated. Well, once again, we've gathered because it's Easter Sunday. It's that one time of the year when, for those of us who are Christians, we gather in remembrance of the fact that though Jesus died, he did not remain dead that he was raised from the grave by the power of God the Father. But I, I fear that for those of us who are Christians, we often gather so often and talk about this idea of a resurrection, the fact that Jesus is alive right now, that he physically was raised from the dead. I fear that at times we talk about it so often, it's easy for us to lose the wonder of that. And I think because we lose the wonder of it, we then lose the ability or the desire or both at times to proclaim this news to those who don't know Christ. I mean, think about it. Easter comes around every year. It's one of those two, if you want to put it like this, high holy days that Christians have. You know, we have one at the sort of beginning-ish of the year, and we have one at the end of the year. Christmas is the one that, you know, we kind of get together as Christians, and we remember the fact that Jesus became a man. And then sometime in the spring, Easter never stays the same, but sometime in the spring, we then get together, and we remember that, oh, this person who, you know, we celebrate, you know, the little baby, the baby died, but like I keep saying, he died, but he didn't stay dead. The problem is, at times, I think after so many Easter's, like I said, we run the risk of losing the wonder of this thing we call the physical resurrection of Christ. Sometimes I think we forget, not just on this day, but throughout the rest of the year, that the temptation often is to forget why this event we call the resurrection, why it matters. And so this morning, I, I don't have a long message because I just want to kind of get straight to the point. Why does it matter that we Christians believe that a, ma a Jewish man 2,000 years ago died but didn't stay dead? Why is that so important? Why would we as Christians stake our eternal destiny on something as ridiculous sounding as a guy who died coming back to life? Well, if you're wondering that question, 
Acts 17, I think, is a good place to come to. Actually, there's a number of places you could go in the Bible to make this point. But I've come here because Paul is speaking to people who aren't convinced about this thing called a resurrection. Did you pick that up when we were reading? The, and we'll come back to this at the end of the message. Some people heard him and didn't know what to do with it. Some just thought he was nonsense. Did you note that some people called him a, my translation says, an ignorant show-off? Literally, a babbler. So people have their responses when you hear this thing, but we need to ask the question, why exactly does this thing matter? Why is it important that we as Christians say, Jesus rose from the dead? Well, rather than try and convince you that, okay, he did, I'm going to let Paul do the work this morning. Paul's going to do the heavy lifting for us. Why is it that Easter matters? Why is it that the resurrection matters? Like I told you, I don't have a long message this morning. I'm going to get straight to it. Can I put it to you that, first of all, the resurrection matters because the resurrection begins with God. The resurrection begins with God, verses 22 to 29. Paul gets up in front of this predominantly pagan audience there, polytheists. He kind of picks that up as he moves through Athens, and he sees these multiple gods that these peoples worship. And Paul, in a stroke, I believe, inspired genius in verse 23, says, I kind of walked around and I saw that you have, an, you have an altar for this and you've got an object of worship for that. You've got a shrine for this and a temple for that. I walked around and I noticed you had one. You just tried to, you covered all your bases. You, you couldn't, like, you recognize you don't know all of them. So you're like, you know what? To the one that's unknown, we've got, we've got you covered too. And Paul says, the one that you don't know, Allow me to introduce him to you. Paul begins where any good presentation of the good news, what we Christians call the gospel, should begin. He begins with God. And two things about God in particular. Verses 22 to 25, he talks about the power of God. The power of God. So particularly in verse 24, you see it there? He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth earth. He does not live in shrines made by human hands. Paul says, this God who exists, this God that I'm proclaiming to you, he's all powerful. In fact, he's so powerful, he doesn't need help from man to either be worshipped or to be sustained. He says that he doesn't live in shrines made by human hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needs anything. This God is all-powerful. He created the world. The Bible tells us as Christians that this God created the world by simply the word of his mouth and did it in six 24-hour days. Some may choose to argue that and say, well, does it really mean a day? Well, I put it to you that God knows how to speak. And so when God says it was a day, a day means a day. That's a whole other subject for another message. But my point is, this God is all-powerful. This God doesn't need help to be worshipped, and he doesn't need help to exist. He creates all things. But Paul doesn't just say that this God creates all things. Verses 26 and 29, he doesn't just talk about the power of this God. He talks about the providence of this God. Not only does he possess the power to create all things, he possesses the providence to keep them all going. So verse 26, 
He says, from one man, in fact, jump back to the beginning of verse 25. He says, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Paul's point about this God is that this God doesn't need human help, but humans need this God's help. That human beings can't survive. That human beings can't sustain themselves without his help. As Hebrews chapter 1 tells us as Christians, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that this God sustains the world by the word of his power. He spoke the world into existence and he keeps the world in existence by what he speaks. He goes on. Verse 26, from one man he made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Not only does this God create a world, he then creates a world in such a way as he gives everybody what they need, where they need to live, the best place that will help to sustain them. He prepares the best possible world, as it were, that allows his creatures that he's made to flourish and to survive and to be sustained. Did you know that he says that he made every nationality from one man? Paul goes right back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the one man, Adam. And from that one man, Adam, you, I, and every other human being who exists, exists today. He creates this, he creates all people from this one man. But not only does he create all peoples from this one man, Not only does he decide the boundaries of where they would ultimately live, he does all of this. You see verse 27? He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. God creates a world which is perfectly hospitable for human beings, contains everything that they need. He sustains them for the sole purpose that human beings would know that he is there. That as it were, perhaps they might reach out. The, the picture here is of human beings who are blinded. And the reason why they're blinded is the Bible tells us that in Genesis chapter 3, after God created this good and this perfect world, this event called the fall happened. Our first parents disobeyed God who gave them a very clear instruction. And in disobeying that very clear instruction, they plunged the world into sin and darkness. And so now we as human beings are like blind men groping around, trying to get a sense of where is this God who created us? But we can't because we're blinded, we're unable. Verse 28, he goes on and says, For we, excuse me, for in him, this God who created all things, we live and we move and we have our being. And Paul makes a very clever point because he pulls back even on the writings of the day and says, listen, your own poets know this. They testify to the fact that this God exists. All human beings have this knowledge of of a God who exists. My Bible tells me in Romans chapter 1 that Human beings know that there is a God. That that which can be known about God, Paul says, is obvious to them. But they suppress that truth. The Bible uses the language of holding it down. Uh, It's like going on a vacation and you're trying to pack your suitcase, but the suitcase is too full. But 
human beings being the stubborn people that we are, you're insistent that you're going to take every single thing in the suitcase. So what do you do? You hold it down and hope that if you hold it down long enough and you zip it quickly enough, everything will fit. Paul says that's what we do with the knowledge of God. Rather than deal with it, we keep thinking, I'll just keep stuffing it, keep stuffing it. I won't have to address it. I won't have to think about it. But the problem is, that thing is a little full. So you keep holding it down and Paul says it's obvious. It just keeps popping back up. And Paul notes that because this knowledge of God is obvious, because this knowledge of God is beyond debate. Verse 29, since we are God's offspring then, Paul doesn't even try and prove the point. He just says, it is. (laughs) Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul's point is real simple. If this God exists, and Paul's assumption is that he does exist, if this God exists, he is nothing like you and I. And so Paul begins his gospel presentation. Paul begins his defense of the resurrection with God. Why? Because that's where it always has to begin. That as Christians, when we grapple with the reality of the resurrection, first and foremost, we are grappling with God as he is. That the resurrection is not just something Christians made up to explain the fact that their religious leader 2,000 years ago died a death that he shouldn't have died. No, 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 no. For us as Christians, the resurrection begins with the very testimony of God himself. If this resurrection didn't happen, we can't trust anything that God said. And so the resurrection begins with God. But can I put it to you that not only does the resurrection matter because it begins with God, secondly, the resurrection matters because the resurrection is God's warning. The resurrection is God's warning, verses 30 and 31. Paul has laid the backdrop. He said, well, here's this God. He created all things. The knowledge of him is obvious. If that's the case, verse 30, therefore... Having overlooked the times of ignorance. Let's stop there for a moment. What does Paul mean when he says overlooking the times of ignorance? Well, very simple. In the Bible's understanding, there was a point at which, as it were, human beings, though the knowledge of God was in the world, and yes, God sent his people, yes, the knowledge of God was not as fully known. In that sense, people were ignorant, and you can't hold people culpable for what they don't know. You can't blame somebody. It would be akin to a police officer stopping someone and saying, you broke the speed limit, and there's not been a a road sign for hundreds of miles. I didn't know what the speed limit was because there was no sign. In Romans chapter 5, Paul makes this point. He says, listen, sin can't be credited where there is no law. There can't be a punishment for sin if you didn't know what the law was. And so that's Paul's point here when he says that having overlooked the times of ignorance, literally the word for overlook is an interesting one. It literally means to wink at. In other words, God kind of turned a blind eye to for just a moment. But he goes on and says, therefore having overlooked the time of ignorance, that was then, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, that becomes important. Paul says, on the basis of the fact that God created this world, on the basis of the fact that God has been merciful to human beings up till this time, 
says, all that being true, right now, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, well, let's for a moment then talk about this thing called repentance then. What exactly do we mean when we talk about repentance? Well, the Bible word for repentance simply just means a change of mind. It's a change of mind. But it's not just a mere change of mind. It's not just like, I woke up this morning and I was going to wear a white shirt. But then I figured it was Easter. So I thought I'd wear something a little more colorful today. I changed my mind at seven something when I woke up this morning. That, that's not what that word means. Yes, it's a change of mind, but it's the kind of change of mind. It literally means to turn. That you're going in one direction, and then you decide, mm, this is not the direction I need to be going in. I need to turn. <laughs> but here's the thing. Not only is it a change of mind, not only is it a turning, it's the kind of turning that says, I'm turning and I'm not going back. I'm changing course. I'm taking a new direction, and this is going to be the direction going forward. And Paul says, God commands all people everywhere to change their mind, change course, and keep changing course. Can I pause and say that as human beings, you may think, okay, what do I need to repent for? Well, that's what the Bible calls sin. Sin is not very hard to define. Sin is basically breaking God's law. Sin is basically saying, I've seen what God commands. I know what I should do and I don't do it. Or it's, I don't know what I should do and I haven't done it. Both of those to God are counted as sin. And Paul says, what needs to happen is we need to repent from that. From those actions that go against what God says and those actions that are ignorant of what God says. All of those we need to turn from and turn to God. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Well, verse 31 says, Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Paul would have his audience and have us by extension to understand that not only, is the God, not only is the resurrection, excuse me, God's warning that all men must repent, it's God's warning that if you don't, there is a day of judgment coming. That if you decide not to change your mind, change course, and keep changing course, the only other option is you face God as the judge. As human beings, we have an inbuilt sense of justice. We recognize that when something is wrong, it needs to be made right. We recognize when somebody steps in a courtroom, we all know they're guilty, or we all think we know they're guilty either way. We think we know they're guilty, or in some cases, they are guilty, and they get off. There's something in us as human beings that says, that's not right. That, that doesn't make sense. 
When we hear somebody has been hurt or has been abused or has been mistreated, there's something in us as human beings that rightfully says, that's not the way it should be. Somebody should make that right. And I put it to you that the reason why human beings feel that way is because, as Paul says, we're God's offspring. We're made in his image. And if we as human beings recognize that when you hurt someone, when you do something that is not right, when you do something that is abusive, you must be punished. How much more the eternal God who is perfect, unlike us, this perfect God, how much more will he not judge? People may get uncomfortable at this point and say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, I mean, in the Old Testament, yeah, that, the God in the Old Testament, he's kind of got an anger problem. He needs an adjustment or two. He needs to take an anger management course. He gets really angry about stuff. But in the New Testament, he's the God of love. I mean, Jesus was really nice. I mean, he just went around like, you know, looking like a hair model, just laying hands on everyone, doing all kinds of wonderful, wonderful miracles. He was really, really sweet. Can I also put it to you that the same Jesus said, Luke chapter 13, in quite blunt fashion, when people came to him after a natural disaster and asked him what his opinion was, Jesus said, what, did you think that they were worse sinners than any of you? Listen, if you don't repent, you will perish just like them. God has appointed a day in which all those who have rejected him will one day face him as judge. Can I give you the Bible's description of that day very quickly? You don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. says, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to the, their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the day of fire. That's just one description of hundreds that the Bible gives of this day of judgment that's coming. And just in case you think the day of judgment is not coming, Paul's point is a very simple one. The day of judgment is certain because the resurrection is certain. Because there is right now an empty tomb that a man was in for just three days, but he isn't there right now because that tomb is empty. Judgment is certain for every person who has turned their back on God. That sounds like bad news. I, I think we can agree that, right? It, it, that doesn't sound good. But I think Paul does something that's very clever here. In fact, it's my third point. The resurrection presumes the cross. Paul doesn't explicitly, men explicitly mention the cross, but he doesn't have to. Do you see the end there of verse 30, 31 if you're following along in your Bible? Paul says that God has provided proof of this day of judgment 
by to everyone by raising him, the man that he's appointed, from the dead. Now, it's a simple deduction. If somebody was raised from the dead, what had to happen before they were raised? They had to be dead. <laughs> the resurrection presumes an event called the cross. Oftentimes, Christians will argue which is more important, the cross or the resurrection. And personally, I think it's a dumb argument. Because both of them are important. Paul says, well, he kind of, again, he's very clever in how he does this. I think he knows his audience well enough. He has a very sophisticated way of saying, oh, this man died. A couple of days ago was Good Friday. As Christians on Good Friday, we remember the fact that the eternal God, who had always been in the bosom of the Father, who had always enjoyed all the privileges of heaven, took on a human nature in addition to his divine nature. I don't understand how that works. All I know is that it works. Praise God. He takes on a human nature in addition to his divine nature. He enters into our world. And as he enters into our world, he lives as a human being. Yes, he is fully God, but he was also fully man. He lived the perfect life, full obedience to God's law, full submission to everything his father commanded him, a life that we were unable and incapable of living. This perfectly righteous man, then in a final glorious act of obedience, goes to the cross. He's innocent. In fact, multiple times he's declared innocent by different people. He's innocent, but yet he willingly goes to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, he takes on the sins of millions who would believe in him. And as he takes on the sins of all of these people for six hours, he endures all of the wrath of God that you deserved to bear. The fact that you broke God's law and that you deserve to be punished, he takes on your punishment. Well, that's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. That's the point. <laughs> the point is that God steps in. This is crazy. Think about this with me for a moment. I'm trying to get too excited here. God levies the fine towards humanity, as it were, and then turns around and pays the fine. God is the one who was grieved by man's sinful actions. God is the one who's been rejected, and yet God is the one who turns around and says, I will fix the problem that I didn't create. <laughs> the fact that the resurrection takes place, there would be no resurrection for us to celebrate if there were no cross. And so, no, we don't pit the cross against the resurrection. We don't say, well, I only want to hear about Jesus and him crucified. Don't talk to me about the resurrection. No, 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 you need both of those. Yes, Jesus died, but praise God, Jesus didn't stay dead. And so Paul would have us to understand that the resurrection begins with God, his power and his providence. The resurrection is his warning. His warning that all men must repent and that all men will be judged. Well, if a man died, if a man rose from the dead, that presumes he died. So the resurrection presumes the cross. But can I put it to you finally this morning? I told you I wasn't going to be before you long. 
The resurrection demands a response. The resurrection demands a response. Verse 32, 33, and 34 of our text this morning. The reality is that, uh, by the way, Paul finishes his sermon in verse 31. He's done. Verse 32. Some people will reject this message. I have no debate in my mind that right now, even as I'm talking, there are people who have made their mind up. Preacher, that sounds cute, but I don't care. I mean, I've been that person. I'm not going to sit there and say that I've never done that. Became a Christian at 14. Did I hear the gospel before I was 14? Yep. Did I turn around and say, mm, doesn't apply to me? Yep. <laughs> I'm sure you can talk to other people in the room. They can tell you. Yep. Probably heard the gospel a few times and, eh, okay, sounds good. Some people were rejected. You see that there in verse 32? When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. <laughs> Man rose from the dead. Yeah, right. <laughs> Some will reject it. Some people are going to hear this right now and say, you know what? Miss me with that. I mean, uh, I've heard all that before. Or that doesn't make sense. Or, you know, I'm a good person. I don't need all that. <laughs> Some people will reject it. For some, they're going to try and straddle the fence. You see that there? Others said, we'd like to hear you again. Like, mm, I'm undecided. Well, you know, sounds plausible. I need some time with that. It's interesting, Paul doesn't spend much time. Verse 33 says, so Paul left their presence. Paul's like, I've done what I needed to do. <laughs> I didn't come here to philosophize. I didn't come here to pontificate. I came armed with a message. I've declared that message. I've done what I need to do. Some will reject, some will be undecided, but some believe. See that then, verse 34? However, some people joined him and believed. And he mentions a couple of people, I'm guessing these were people who would have been very well known in the day. It says others with them. So even as Paul preaches, all three responses happen. Some reject, some are undecided, or some are uncommitted. And some believe. And can I put it to you that those are the same three options that stand before all human beings today? That you can't just hear this message about a man named Jesus. You can't just hear this message about the resurrection and about a day of judgment and not do anything about it. Either it's no, I don't know, or yes. <laughs> There's no, I don't really care. This, not, this doesn't affect me. Yeah, it does. I mean, you read it, right? There's a day coming, he's going to judge. Note what he says, he's going to judge the world. Like, everybody is going to face their day in court. Oftentimes people will say, how can you Christians believe in a God who allows people to do all kinds of evil things and then they die? I said, see, that's your presumption. Your presumption is they die and that's the end. You have to worry about that. I don't. Not to be glib about it, not to be cavalier about it, but the reality is, if they didn't get it in this life, they will in the next. <laughs> Only the Christian has that hope. 
That's why I can see injustice in the world. And yes, I'm not saying that Christians should not do anything to address those injustices, to, to seek to understand and to help. Not at all. But I also recognize. I also understand. I'm also aware of the fact that whatever injustices are not fixed in this life, the people who perpetrated those injustices will be held accountable one day. And if that is true, in the words of the famous book, this is evidence that demands a verdict. This is the kind of thing that you can't just say, I'm going to put this on the shelf and think about it. No, you need to do something about that today. In the New Testament, Paul says elsewhere that today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not I'll give it a couple of weeks. You might not have a couple of weeks. The resurrection demands a response. Maybe I should throw a word in there in my sermon point this morning. It demands an immediate response. Okay. Okay, Kofi, I'm listening to you. Okay. What exactly is this appropriate response? Well, Paul gave us one half of it. He says that we're to repent. Remember, that's to change your mind, change course, and keep changing course. But not only do we change our mind, change course, and keep changing course, you also have to believe. Belief in the Bible is much more than just, yeah, that sounds plausible. You know, that, 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 that makes sense. Literally, belief in the Bible is a holding on to. It's to, as it were, grab hold of to hold on for dear life and say, I hear what you're saying and I believe you. I don't have any other option. We're called to turn. Because here's the thing, as, you're, as you change your mind, change course, and keep changing course, you're turning towards something, aren't you? And that's what faith is. Faith is simply turning toward the living God, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, that the Thessalonian Christians, who he was thankful for, that they had turned from idols and turned to serve the living God. That's the response that is needed when we are confronted with this message. The call to turn from sin, to turn to the Lord in faith, and to keep pursuing him in faith. I told you I didn't have a long message. I'm done. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you can get that sorted today. <laughs> Come talk to me, talk to Brian, talk to Eddie, talk to any one of us here who are believers. We can help you deal with that. Like, salvation is costly, but it ain't hard. <laughs> and if you're here and you are a believer, I hope this kind of weighs up, this kind of fills up for us the importance of this thing we call the resurrection. That this thing we call the resurrection is not just a, you know, really nice tale and, uh, like, you know, it's God's way of making sure the story didn't end on a downer. <laughs> no, it's more than that. This thing called the resurrection is the most important event in history. All of history culminates on this moment. And so let's, let us never take it for granted. Join with me as I breathe the word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we come before you.
humbled by the greatness of what you've done in raising your son and our savior from the dead. I pray for as many people who are either here in person or watching online who have never grappled with these things, who have never grappled with the fact that they are a created being, that they are created by a God who one day will hold them to account for the life that they've lived, who have never thought about the reality of Jesus and his perfect life and his all-atoning death, who've never thought about repentance and faith. I pray that you would use this word, that you would press in on them through your spirit as they've heard the word of God today. Bring them all the way to you in repentance and faith. I pray for my brothers and sisters who do know you who are here today. May your spirit fill them with the joy that comes from believing in this glorious reality that your son and our savior has borne the penalty for our sin and that that penalty was accepted and we know this because you raised him from the dead. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.